Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Monday, June 14th. I'm Nyla Boudou. Here's how we're making you smarter today. Israel without Bibi Netanyahu in power. Plus, how the pandemic is still messing up everyone's plans. But first, style over substance at the G7 is today's one big thing. The G7 summit, a meeting of some of the world's wealthiest democracies, wrapped up yesterday in Cornwall, England. Axis's world editor, Dave Lawler, is here with his analysis. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Nala. Dave, so the pandemic's the immediate pressing problem here. What's the latest on the U.S.'s global vaccine pledge? Right. So Biden came into the summit promising 500 million Pfizer doses that the U.S. would buy and donate with developing countries. Uh, He said he would use that pledge to get his G7 partners to kick in, too. There were reports that they were aiming for a billion doses. And they did, in fact, say uh, in the final communique that they we're going to be contributing a billion doses. But if you look at the math there, actually, I'm not sure it all adds up to a billion doses. It says at another time, 870 million. And so basically, the UN uh, and others have looked at that and said, even if it is a billion doses, this is over the course of a year. And that's sort of a fraction of the global needs. Were there any steps taken towards climate change? It's different having Biden at the table as opposed to Trump here because you did get sort of strong common statements about the importance of tackling climate change. But again, we didn't get any new initiatives, no big commitments made from any of these countries uh, about slashing emissions further than they they promised previously. So again, really strong statements on the style, but not a ton of substance came out of it. With all of these democracies, what was the stance on China? So here you did see an interesting development, which is that some of these countries have been more reluctant in the past to make strong statements on China. Uh, but we did get a joint statement that addressed things like Hong Kong, uh, the genocide in Xinjiang, Taiwan security. And also you got this idea of a G7 infrastructure fund to counter China's global Belt and Road infrastructure initiative. So this is very much a preliminary step, but further than past statements when these groups get together had gone on China. Dave, before the summit, you wrote America's back at the table, which is how President Biden summed up this weekend's events. But then you asked the big question, now what? So can I pose that to you? Yeah, I don't think we got a very satisfactory answer there, Nyla. I think that Biden will view this as a successful summit in the sense that the optics were very good. You did get some commitments coming out of it in terms of vaccines. But overall, the question is, Does having these countries pulling in the same direction, all kind of on the same page about democracy and multilateralism, does that mean that you're going to see real progress on these big pressing questions that Biden has put so much emphasis on? Things like climate change, fighting the pandemic, democracy around the world. I don't think you would come out of this and think, wow, this summit was a game changer. Axios' world editor, Dave Lawler. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Nyla. In 15 seconds, Barack Ravid on Israel's historic moment. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Nyla Boudou. Israel has a new prime minister for the first time since 2009, after Neftali Bennett was sworn in yesterday. Axios' Barack Ravid is with us from Tel Aviv to talk about what's next. Hi, Barack. Hey, how are you? Barack, how dramatic is this day for Israel? Well, it is, it is a very dramatic day. Benjamin Netanyahu was in power for more than 12 consecutive years. And altogether, he was in power for more than 15 years. This is more or less 
20% of the time since the, since the country was established. So I think that for many Israelis, those who supported him and those who did not support him, for both, this is a day that I think still, many of them still do not believe that this has actually happened. So what do we need to know about Naftali Bennett and this coalition? Well, first, this coalition is, is, is unprecedented. It starts from the very right wing, a Yemina party headed by Naftali Bennett. Uh, this is someone who supported annexation uh, of uh, parts of the West Bank to Israel. It continues with Gidon Saar and his New Hope party, which is also a very hard right-wing uh, party. It continues with Avigdor Lieberman, another right-wing uh, leader, with Yair Lapid, a centrist, Benny Gantz, a centrist, and two left-wing parties, the Labour Party and Meretz. And if this is not enough... For an eclectic coalition, you have the Islamist Ram Party, which is the first ever Arab party to join an Israeli government, an Israeli coalition. So this is really historic in many, many ways. Such an eclectic government will also be very fragile. Luckily for them, they still have a glue. And this glue is the fact that Benjamin Netanyahu will stay as the head of opposition. And they will be very concerned not to allow him to come back. We heard President Biden issue a statement on Sunday immediately congratulating Bennett and the new government and adding that the U.S. has no better friend than Israel. Given what you've just said about the fragility of this government, what can we expect from the Israeli side of the U.S.-Israel relationship? After the, the statement, Biden also called Bennett. Bennett thanked him for his support uh, for Israel during the last conflict uh, in Gaza, and they spoke about how to strengthen the bilateral relationship. But in the White House readout of the call, Biden made it clear that he intends to put effort into trying to move the Israeli-Palestinian peace process forward. Unlike Netanyahu, I think that Bennett would like to get along with Biden, and especially in order to show the Israeli public that he can manage this very important relationship. Axios is Barack Ravid. Thanks, Barack. Thank you. We're more than a year into this, and we all know the pandemic has upended pretty much every aspect of our lives. Now, as we're getting back to some kind of normal, the pandemic's aftermath is also messing with our ability to predict the future of how we live, work, and play. Erica Pandy is with us to explain more. Erica, how has the pandemic affected our ability to look ahead? So if you think about it, Nala, two years ago, if I had asked you to tell me what your office or your neighborhood or, you know, your kid's school or anything like that would look like in three months, everyone would be able to do that no problem. Now we're in this very weird time where you don't really know what life is going to look like in three months because we're all finding kind of a new normal. And it's making this period of the near future more volatile and more exciting than it ever has been before. This is actually the topic of a new newsletter Axios is launching today about our changing future called What's Next? How are you going to account for how hard it is to forecast the future? So forecasters need to have some humility right now. That's what they've been telling me. So we're going to do the same. We're going to have some humility about this. The future used to be about robots and AI and biotech and what's happening in 50, 100 years. And that's still very exciting. But 
the next three months, the next six months is now really exciting too. And we're just going to be looking at that time frame and all of the rapid change that's happening right in there. Erica Pandy is one of the authors of our new What's Next newsletter that launches today. Thanks, Erica. Thanks, Nyla. That's been in my head all weekend after I saw the long-awaited movie In the Heights. Hollywood's been hoping the film version of the Lin-Manuel Miranda Broadway musical would bring Americans back to the movies. The film didn't meet those lofty box office expectations of this weekend, but it did succeed in presenting major roles for Latino characters. Even though this film is a diverse celebration of Hispanic heritage, the L.A. Times is reporting Hollywood still has a long way to go. Hispanics make up 18 percent of our population, but only about 6 percent of the representation on TV and even less on film. But that could change as Steven Spielberg's West Side Story and the new Fast and the Furious movie are slated to come to theaters this year. That's it for us today. You can always follow me on Twitter. My handle's Nyla Boodoo, and I just tweeted out that L.A. Times story I was talking about. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.